0: Everybody okay? Yeah? Awesome. Good to be with you. Great to see you this morning. Um, I'm going to begin our time together this morning a little different than we have in the past. If you've been tracking in the news, then you know that across the pond there's some stuff going on that I think the church in America probably needs to be in prayer for. And so this morning I'm going to just take some time and I want us to have a moment of silence for Israel. And, and I want us to go to the Lord and ask for peace in the land. And ask him to do something special there, okay? So if you would, let's just have a moment of silence. If you would go to the Lord, I'll I'll conclude us here in just a second, okay? Okay. Father, we come to you today heavy-hearted and burdened over the news and what we've seen. Uh, Father, I come to you um, one reminded that it is by your grace that I am saved. It's by your grace that we are saved and that we are grafted into the family of God. And so this morning as we come to you, Lord, we ask for peace in the land of Israel. Uh, We ask that you'd be with your people. We ask that you would put an end to terrorism we ask that you would do only that what you can do. God, we ask that you would be with the families who have lost loved ones. We ask that you would encourage them and that you would be close to them. Father, that your presence would be near to them, that they would have hope. Father, who knows what the days bring? God, we don't know that. We don't know the future. Even Jesus says that he didn't know the future. When he was asked and so father knowing that we don't know the future we come to you lord and we submit ourselves to you and say lord use us god but until the day that you take us home or that you return father we ask for peace and it's in the name of jesus that we pray amen all right well you may or may not know this but every one of you is a professional in something did you know that Quit looking at your husband and saying, See, babe, there is hope. (laughs) Every one of us, you are a professional in something. You know what that something is? You are a professional worshiper. Every one of us in this room, whether you realize it or not, is a professional worshiper. The only question is, Who or what are you worshipping? Who or what are you worshipping? Who are you a pro at worshipping? What are you a pro at worshipping? That's kind of the nature of what we've been talking about over the last several weeks in our Cultivating God series is, is God a priority in your life, or is He the priority in your life? Is He the whole sheet of paper, or is He a list of bullet points in your life? Because here's what I'll tell you. If you want to know what you worship, all you need to do is look at your priorities. Your priorities will lead you to where your heart is worshiping. And so if you've ever wondered, am I a pro at anything? Yes, you are. What you need to ask yourself is, is who and what am I worshiping and what do my priorities reveal about that which I worship? This morning, what we're going to talk about is restoring worship in the heart of God's people. That's where we're headed. If you wanted to know what my one point is, that's my one point. We're going to restore the worship in God's people, and we're going to do so by looking at the book of John chapter 12. John chapter 12. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and meet me there. John chapter 12, we're going to look at verses 1 through 8 this morning. Uh, We're going to conclude in Revelation. Yes, that is Revelation, the last book of the Bible. That's where we're going to conclude our time together. And we're going to wrap up this series, Cultivating a Life with God. As you're turning there, I've got a question for you. Okay, here's your question. Who is the most polarizing figure that's ever walked the planet? You should think about that for a minute see the word polarizing is tough because to be polarizing that means you have to be the most loved person and also over here you have to be the most hated person so who is the most loved and at the same time the most hated person who's ever walked the planet well y'all are get hey, y'all are getting ahead of me y'all are cheating you do not give me the sunday school answer There you go. Right, so it's easy for us to think through, here's all the people that we've loved over the years, right? We can think of people like Mother Teresa. We can think of, um, gosh, modern day. We can think of Taylor Swift, God bless us, right? We can think of a ton of different people. I think of, uh, of, 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 of Jackie Kennedy. I think you may know her as Jackie O. People loved her, right, in the 60s. She was, she was an important figure. Uh, we can think of tons of different people. Nelson Mandela is another person that we have historically, people have loved, right? We can think of people that we hate, right? Doesn't take you long to think about that. Maybe it's that neighbor, ah, coworker where's wears you out. We think of people like Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, Jeffrey Dahmer. We could go on and on about the people that the world has historically hated, but who is the most polarizing Well, my argument would be Jesus. Thanks for y'all cheating earlier in my quiz. My argument is that the most hated person and the most loved person on the earth who's ever walked the earth is Jesus. Here's why I would say that. Today, we have an estimated 2.38 billion, not million, billion people who claim the name of Jesus. 2.38 2.38 billion people across the globe would say that Jesus is the king of their lives. That means that we've got, in a world of eight, close to 8 billion people, you've got 2.38 who would say Jesus is king. You'd have close to 6 billion people who've either never heard the name of Jesus, who are indifferent to the name of Jesus, or who we could say hate the name of Jesus. He's an incredibly polarizing figure, Right? In his day, Jesus created more followers than anyone who has ever lived. These same followers praised him as he rode into Jerusalem, and not many days later were yelling, crucify him, crucify him, crucifying. Polarizing figure. In this particular context of the book of John, Jesus in chapter 11 has just raised Lazarus from the dead. Right? That's not something that just anybody can do. Right, Jesus has just received word that his close friend Lazarus has, has, has passed away. So Jesus comes to Bethany. He walks up to the tomb where Lazarus has been laying dead for four days. And he orders that the tomb, the, the stone on the tomb be rolled rolled back. He calls out Lazarus, come out, and what does he do? He comes out. It's crazy. The text says that there were many people who were gathered there that day. In fact, in chapter 45 of chapter 11, or verse 45 of chapter 11, here's what the text says. It says, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary, who had seen what he did, they saw him raise the dead. Many of them believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Here is Jesus doing this amazing miracle, something that no one had ever seen before, and the text says that many believed. But what you don't see there is that while many believed, there were many who didn't. And those that didn't ran to the Pharisees and told them what they had heard. Now, for fear of of losing power and authority, what did the Pharisees do? They began plotting to kill Jesus. Polarizing figure, most loved and most hated person that's ever walked the planet. Now, as we turn to John chapter 12, we also see another unique thing. Not only is Jesus the most polarizing figure outside of his disciples, outside of his followers, but we also see that Jesus is the most polarizing figure within his disciples as well. In fact, you can pick up with me in verse 1 of chapter 12. The text says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So he's returning. He had had raised Lazarus from the dead. He's returning back. And so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served. Martha, she's still serving. (laughs) Did you get that? It was funny. And Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment and made pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with perfume." In this scene, this is a beautiful example of one who deeply loves Jesus and prioritizes him above everything else in her life. Mary, sitting there at the feet of Jesus, humbling herself, anointing Jesus' feet with oil and begins to wipe his feet, clean his feet with her hair. Now, for us sitting in our day and time, we're probably like, that's pretty weird like, I, I have never, ever experienced anybody washing somebody's feet with their hair. And I think if I did, I'd probably go, man, that's a little different. That's a little different. But in their day and time, that was a sign of love, admiration, and worship. Mary is sitting at the one and whom had entered into her world turned it upside down, transformed her from the inside out, and now she is sitting at his feet and doing, and worshiping him. Worshiping in response to what he had done in her life. Now, not only that, but here's the other thing. Notice what she's washing his feet with. We're going to learn here in just a minute that it was a costly ointment, a perfume. In fact, what we'll learn in the text is that it cost 300 denarii to to pay for this perfume or this ointment. 300 denarii. Do you know what a denarii is? It's a day's wage. So if you might think about it this way, she just spent an annual salary to cover and to clean the feet of Jesus. I can think of no better way to say Jesus, you are not a priority in my life. You are the priority in my life. And my life and the way I live it is a response to what you have done in and through me. Right? This is the same Mary whose story would lead her just a few days later to another empty tomb. Weeping outside of Jesus' tomb, she would cry out, where have they taken my Lord? What have they done with my King? Again, Mary's life demonstrates what a life looks like when Jesus is the priority and not a priority. So that's one example in the life of the disciples and kind of the, the group of followers that are following Jesus. Here's a second example. On the contrary, we see another end of the story in verse 4. Look there at verse 4. John tells us while Mary's worshiping, here's what Judas is doing. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was about to betray him said, why in the world is this anointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Judas makes a good point here. He says, why in the world are we okay with this woman wasting 300 denarii, an entire year annual salary to wash his feet? Are we okay with that? That's what that's what Judas is thinking here. That's what he's asking. Well, John answers the question in verse 6. He helps us see the heart of Judas. He says that Judas said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. You know, it's interesting because here's, the, here's kind of the picture of hate. Mary gives us this beautiful picture of love, what it means to love and adore Jesus, whereas Judas here is giving us a glimpse into what it really truly means to hate somebody. While Judas Judas is described as one of Jesus' disciples, his life demonstrates something far from it. He criticized how one of of Jesus' followers worshipped him I know nobody in the room would ever do that. He exploited his position among the disciples to rob the ministry for himself. Some would say, I think I would agree with this, that to exploit another human being for self-gain is the definition of hate. To exploit somebody for your own gain is the definition of hate. And here Judas is demonstrating this very truth Before our eyes. He followed Jesus not for what. Not for what Jesus could gain. But for what he could gain. Not for what he could give. But what he could get out of it. Sadly Judas was one of the first in the group. To follow Jesus. And as they followed Jesus. He witnessed his teachings and his miracles. Like Mary he experienced Jesus calling Lazarus. Out of the tomb. And yet they have very differing. Responses. For Mary it was adoration and worship Jesus you're worthy of all that I have and all that I am for Judas it was to disregard Jesus it was to disregard what he had done on earth, what he had seen him do Judas cared more about him than he cared about Jesus this is a great picture of both love and hate even inside the followers of Jesus now here's another question let's take it a little bit deeper What's worse than hating somebody? Think about that. Just think about it. Rhetorical question. What's worse than hating someone? Well, I did a little research, and I found a survey. They asked a very similar question. They, the survey asked two Americans, "What's worse? what's the one thing that's worse than hating somebody? You know what the answer was? Being indifferent towards them. What's the one thing that's worse than hating something? Hating somebody. It's being indifferent. And here's what's crazy. Jesus would agree. In Revelation chapter 3 verse 15, here's what Jesus says to the church in Laodicea. He writes this in verse 15. He says, "I know your works. I know everything that's going on in the church. I see you. I know you. I've seen it all." He says, "I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot." He said, I wish that you were either cold or hot but because you were lukewarm and neither cold nor hot I will spit you out of my mouth. Now keep in mind this is this is the Colossian church that he's speaking to. Did you know that the church of Laodicea was a church plant off of the Colossian church we just walked through? The, Paul's letter to the Colossian church we saw a healthy, thriving church. And that here, here we are looking at not a group of unbelievers, but Jesus is speaking to a group of believers, to the church, the church at Laodicea, and he says, "Hey, listen, you're neither hot. You're not cold. You're lukewarm." He says, like a lukewarm cup of coffee. I well, spit it out of my mouth. They say a picture is worth a thousand words, but this is a tough picture of how Jesus feels about a church who's indifferent towards him, who makes him a priority rather than the priority. Wow. And get this, he, di- he diagnoses the problem in verse 7 of Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. Here's what he says. For you say, "I am rich, I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked." He says, "I counsel you to buy food, or to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich and white garments that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And I have given you salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. In other words what Jesus says is that our lukewarmness the problem of our lukewarmness is really our pride. It's our pride. If you're experiencing lukewarmness in your life right now towards the Lord it's it's your pride. That's the source of it. The source of our lukewarmness as a church, the source of our lukewarmness as individuals is our pride. What Jesus says here is that either we have forgotten that apart from him we are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, believing we have it all together and we need help, no help from him or anyone else. Which, by the way, is spiritual arrogance. Jesus himself said that apart from me, you can do nothing. Not something, nothing. There's nothing that you can do apart from me. That's what Jesus says. Not me, that's what Jesus says. For us to believe that we offer any spiritual value on this earth apart from him is spiritual arrogance. It's to forget that we are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So we're either forgotten what he has done for us in Christ and that we desperately need him. Or we have forgotten that he is the one who offers us a place at his table. Who covers our shame. Who opens our eyes and comforts us with his grace for many of us in the room this is the other side of pride that we don't often talk about typically we talk about pride we're talking about arrogance well there's another side of that coin and that's self-pity it's to forget that God has welcomed you a wretched sinner to his table who's covered his covered your shame with the the blood of his son that has covered your shame with his righteousness And for us to continue in our disappointment and in our misery is the definition of spiritual self-pity, which again is the other side of that pride coin that we don't talk about very often. There's two sides of pride. There's the arrogance and then there's the self-pity, the self-loathing. By the way, both of them are a more concern with self than others, certainly God. So he diagnoses the problem of our lukewarmness. He says, if you want to know the problem, it's our pride. It's our pride. Either we have forgotten our desperate need for Jesus, or we have forgotten his goodness and grace towards us. Now, let's just kind of bring this into our neighborhood a little bit here, okay? Let's welcome this into our home. I've said this time and time again, and I'm going to continue until it changes, because this is so important but the Christian church is not dying today because of people who hate the church or who who picket the church. If, and this is a big if, if the Christian church is dying or in decline, it's because God's people are lukewarm. That's the reason. That's the reason. If you want to know what, what the problem with the church today is, Jesus hits the nail on the head right here in Revelation 3. It's that the church is lukewarm. We're indifferent. We're indifferent to God because we have all these other priorities. And maybe he makes the list. But at the end of the day, he is not the priority. And because he is not the priority, we take all of our other priorities and we place it over him. And here's what I know, right? If he is not the priority, he's not a priority. Follow me here right if I don't give God my first and best in the mornings guess what happens I very rarely if ever give him anything at all if I don't write my first check to him I'm going to pay all my other stuff and then I'm going to give him what's left over and you all know what's true there's never anything left over because we'll spend it right I'll give everybody else all of my time and my energy thinking oh well God will always be there and that's true But I want you to hear what Jesus says here. For those who are lukewarm, I will, out of my mouth. That's a condemnation on our church. It's a condemnation on our church. You know, this morning we just had 12 families stand up here. 12 families who stood up here to say, hey, I am going to I'm gonna make a concerted effort to pray my son, to pray my daughter into the kingdom that they may know and follow Jesus all the days of their life. Which by the way, parents, you're not off the hook. If they're gonna do it, then you've gotta do it. You can't expect your kid to come to know and follow Jesus if you're not showing them what that looks like. You can't expect them to prioritize the Lord and make him the priority of their life if if he's not the priority of your life. It won't happen. We will send these kids off to college and we will go, why in the world don't they go to church? Because you didn't go to church. Right? Why don't they prioritize the prioritize the Lord? Because you didn't prioritize the Lord. Don't punt that on the culture. It's not secular universities that are causing the problem in our kids. It's our homes. I will die, I will die, I will fight, I will die on my sword for that. Until we become serious about raising our kids to know and follow Jesus, it ain't gonna happen. And nobody else is gonna do it for you. As a church, these are our kids. They're not just the people who stood up here, they're not just their kids, they're our kids. I was just reading an article this morning at way too early in the morning talking about how the church is a family it's a family y'all paul says that this is how we ought to obey in the household of god right there's a relational part of that right we don't just come here to sing a few songs and to hear some guy yell at you right like that's not what we're here to do we're here to pour into each other we're here to take these kids and say i'm going to be serious about loving these families Praying for them, coming alongside of them, saying, Hey, you got this, you can do this. And nobody in this room can say that you don't have anything to offer. Nobody in this room can say, Well, I don't have time for that. Then, my goodness, what do you have time for? I mean, seriously, y'all. Seriously. The Lord has a high calling on our church, and it ain't gonna be lukewarm. Right? I don't care if we build a building or not. We ain't going to walk into a new building lukewarm. We're going to walk in on fire with our hearts restored in worship. Because it doesn't matter if we're in a tent, if we're in this building, or in that building, or if we're on the street. If, we don't, if we're not on fire for the Lord. And so my heart for you, I think what what Paul's heart for you and what Jesus' heart for us is that we would we would recognize that this is the household of God. And nobody else is gonna take care of it but us. Are we gonna expect them out there to do that? Are we gonna expect the people outside these walls to raise money for the future? Are we gonna expect those people out there to pour into our kids? Here's what I'll tell you, if you don't disciple them, somebody else is going to. And so why in the world would we not take that seriously? Why in the world would we not get fired up about that? We've got an army of people that we just showed you. There's an army of people who are called to push back the darkness and to usher it in light. That's what our calling is. We're going to push back the darkness. We're going to usher in light. And we don't do that by sitting on the sidelines, we got to get in the fight. Yeah, we got to get in the fight. Okay, I'm going to get off my soapbox. Listen, hear me very clearly this morning. you got to hear this. This is so important. Jesus divides our priorities. He's going to divide them, and it's his grace to do so. In John chapter 10, or I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 to 38, here's what Jesus says. He says, whoever loves Father... Or, mother more than me is not worthy of me. Hear that. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Don't be mad at me, be mad at him. He splits our priorities. He splits them. He says more than anything else in this earth, on this earth, even the good things of your mother and your father and your son and your daughter, which are amazing, great things. If those are the priority in your life, if, if that's the priority, what are you going to do when you lose them? What are you going to do when they don't get the scholarship? What are you going to do? When they break your heart, and they're going to break your heart. What Jesus is saying here is that he has to be the priority in your life. You might say, well, Logan, you don't know what all I'm going through. I don't need to know what you're going through. God knows what you're going through. Remember what he said to the church in Laodicea? I know your works. I know everything that's going on in your life. I know it all. He knows don't walk into this church thinking you don't, you're not known and found out. You're known. He knows what you're going through. You may say, well, golly, Logan, if you only knew how much debt I have. If you, but the time, golly, Logan, I don't have time. I'm a professional taxi driver dropping all these kids off, doing all this stuff, right? I get that, but so does he. Well, Logan, I don't have anything to offer. I mean, what, what, am, what do I have to offer the next generation? What do I have to offer people? You have a ton to offer. Do you have life in your, you have breath in your lungs? If you're in Christ, you've been given by his spirit. You've been given him a gift, not for yourself to hoard for yourself, but to give to people. You were created for such a time as this, for the people in this room. You weren't created just to continue walking purposeless throughout the world or throughout the earth. Throughout your day, he's created you for a purpose. And so for you who go, man, I, I don't have anything to give. I don't have time. I don't, I don't have any. Look, here's what I'm going to tell you. Look, like, I love you. Stop. Like, stop it. Like, nobody else is going to come into your life and prioritize Jesus for you. But you got to start somewhere. you got to start somewhere. And you know what? Going from zero to something is the hardest part. But God is not satisfied with half-hearted worship. He's not satisfied with that. He wants all of it. He wants your whole heart. And he is not going to rest until he has all of it. That's why he says in verse 19, he says, those whom I love, those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. Notice that before it's reprove and discipline, he establishes his love. That's because his discipline and his reprove in your life is predicated on his love for you it always comes first his love always comes before he commands you to do anything there's no other system on this earth that offers you that who says i love you so i discipline you and i reprove you and our response then is to repent and to be zealous jesus says he says so be zealous and repent come to me Repent of your false worship, and find me to be enough in your life, and let me set your worship on fire. I love this verse in verse 20. He says, "Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me." Listen, this is a beautiful verse, and we have taken it to mean something in evangelism which is not wrong, but it's out of context. It's out of context. This is not an evangelistic verse. It can be used that way, but that's not the context of it. The context is to believers. It's to believers. It's to you and me who are lukewarm. He says, I stand at the door and I'm knocking. I'm saying, hey, I'm out here. Here I am. Just listen to me. Open the door and I will come in and I will dine with you. I will dine with you. You will be with me and I will be with you. That's a promise. That's not a suggestion. That's a promise for you and for me. That if we open the door, and I'm pleading with you, open the door and say, God, come into my life. Restore my worship. Dine with me. Allow me to dine with you for all of eternity and let my heart be satisfied in you. That's the offer for you and for me this morning. It's to dine with him, to enjoy him, To fellowship with him and to make him the priority of our lives because listen when you do when you make him the priority of your life he will change everything he will reorder the priorities in your life and you will never look back you will never look back ever you will never look back and go man that was awesome i want to go back to that miserable place So here's what I want to do. I want us to take time as we conclude this series and I want us to go to the Lord in prayer and I want us to ask him as a church, as a church, Lord, restore worship in my life. Set me on fire. Don't let me go another moment. Don't let me go another day of being lukewarm. But let me, be, let me com- fully commit my life to you. Fully commit my heart to you and put my yes on the table and watch what he does with it. Okay, I want every head bowed, every eye closed. I'm going to kneel in the posture of our hearts. Well, Father, we come to you today, God, eager to respond to your word eager to respond to what we've seen and experienced in worship this morning, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for who you are and what you've done in the hearts and minds of our church that you continue to add to our number day by day, and you're adding more and more people reminding of us that there is a future and that there's a hope. But God, what hope is there if we move forward lukewarm? Oh, Father, would you enter into our hearts this morning? Would you enter into our hearts? Would you call us to repentance, to confess areas in our heart and our mind where we've been lukewarm, where you've just been a bullet point, when you have not been the sheet of paper? God, I pray that in the stillness and the silence of this moment, God, that you would restore our worship to you, that we'd be fired up, that we'd be excited. God, that we would come early, stay late, and sing loud every day of our lives. Reminded of all of the people who gathered at stadiums all day yesterday to worship, to scream, to yell, to shout for their team. God, let that be us, that we'd be so excited to show up to worship, Lord, that we would come early, we would stay late, we would sing loud of your worship, of your praise. God, that it wouldn't be just something that we do, but God, it would be true and genuine worship that you would be the priority. God, that we would be eager to meet with you in the mornings or at night or throughout the day. That we'd be eager to hear from you, to be transformed by your power. As you continue to keep your head bowed and eyes closed, just want to ask if there's anybody in the room who's never given your heart to Jesus you said man I have not I've never made him a priority in my life you know I want him to be the king of my life listen if that's you in this morning would you just throw up a hand I want to see you because I want to pray for you and ask God to bless you if you're in this room just give me a hand let me see you all right I see you I see you So if that's you, here's what you need to do. Go to the Lord and say, "Listen, God, I see and I know just like you know that I'm a sinner apart from you, that I have not made you the priority of my life. Forgive me. Thank you for sending Jesus to live the life that I should have lived, died the death that I deserve." and was raised to life so that I could have new life and that you would be the priority in my life. And then thank him. Thank him for calling you home. The church is a family. This morning I want you to hear, the church is a family where he is king, nobody else, he is the only king in our life. He is the priority. If you've struggled with that, of teetering and tottering back and forth on that, I just want you to confess that to the Lord. Say, Lord, I'm so sorry for making you a priority. You need to be the priority. Would you restore my worship this morning? Trusting that as you do so, as you open that door, he will come in and he will dine with you this morning for all of eternity. Again, Father, we come to you. We thank you for your grace. Lord, thank you for how you love us. Thank you for your kindness and your goodness to us. God, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us, not at our best, but at our worst. And he reconciled us to you so that now we can be seen, not as we are, but as Christ sees us, clean, forgiven, chosen, beloved, a child of the King. Father, we love you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen.